the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening and welcome to the History Show on RTE Radio 1. On this week's programme, we ran to the centre of the field. We could see the bullets hitting the wall at the railway end. We realised that they were shooting at the crowd. The date, the 21st of November 1920, is etched forever into Irish history as Bloody Sunday. It was a day of violence that saw over 30 people killed or fatally wounded. When the two of them were together, I said to myself, the Lord have mercy on their souls. I then opened fire with my Peter. They both fell dead. Tonight, we'll explore what exactly happened that day, from the IRA assassinations in the morning to the British Crown Force's brutal reprisal at Croke Park, to the murders, raids and roundup of prisoners that followed. The day began with an IRA operation organised by Michael Collins to assassinate members of the so-called Cairo Gang, undercover British intelligence officers sent to Dublin to combat the IRA. For some time, we had been busy collecting data concerning the night prowlers of the British Secret Service. Collins had a plan to strike them down. A considerable number were located. Friendly police who were on duty that night helped him, taking a note of their addresses and supplying the details to him. These are the words of David Nelligan, one of Michael Collins's spies in G Division within the Dublin Metropolitan Police. In his witness statement for the Bureau of Military History, Nelligan described how he used his position to identify targets. Of the whole DMP, there were scarcely half a dozen actively helping Collins. Maids, boarders and messengers also noted English accents and West End suits of clothes. Fellow lodgers reported nocturnal wanderings. There were suspicious inquiries by strangers and persons frequenting houses of the volunteers reported to the squad. The plan was coordinated assassinations, all taking place at 9am to eliminate as many British agents as possible. The major and most successful operation to the credit of GHQ intelligence was the execution of 16 British intelligence officers on the morning of the 21st of November 1920. The words of Frank Soren, taken from his witness statement. Soren worked for the intelligence section of the IRA and was instrumental in the build-up to the assassinations. He describes accompanying assassins, a party of about 10 men, to 38 Upper Mount Street, the residence of two of the targets on Collins's list, Peter Ames and George Bennett. Soren's job was to glean as much intelligence information as possible in the aftermath of the murders. The only information I had as to their whereabouts at this address was a recently captured letter to Ames in which Bennett was mentioned. At 10 o'clock on that night, I went to Upper Mount Street to locate the house. Before leaving, I arranged with the squad leader, Vincent Bourne, where to meet on the following morning. The time arranged for the jobs throughout the city was to be 9am on the 21st. We gained access to number 38 without any difficulty. I asked a maid where was Mr Bennett and Mr Ames. When she told me, we tried the door of Bennett's room, which was locked. Herbert Conroy, a member of the squad, had a sledgehammer under his coat and wanted to break in the door. I would not let him, but instructed the maid to knock on the door, which was opened by Bennett. We took him to a return room where Ames was sleeping and having asked the squad for as much time as possible, as I was interested principally in the papers these intelligence officers might have, they were then executed in Ames's room. 
As Frank Soren mentions, Vincent, or Vinnie Byrne, was one of the assassins who went to that Upper Mount Street address. This is part of Byrne's account from his witness statement. A servant girl opened the door. I asked her if I could see Lieutenant Bennett or Lieutenant Ames, at the same time jamming the door with my foot. As I entered the hall, I beckoned to the remainder of my men to follow. When inside, I asked the girl where did the two officers sleep. She replied, Lieutenant so-and-so sleeps in there, pointed to the front parlour, and the other officer sleeps in the back room down there. I detailed Tom Ennis to take the back room, and I said I would look after the other one. I gently tried the handle to open the door. I found that it was locked. The servant then said to me, You can get in by the back parlour. The folding doors are open. I said, Thank you. We went into the back parlour, with Sean Doyle and Herbie Conroy each side of me. As I opened the folding doors, the officer who was in bed was in the act of going for his gun under his pillow. Doyle and myself dashed into the room, at the same time ordering him to put up his hand, which he did. Doyle dashed around by the side of the bed and pulled up Colt 45 from beneath the pillow. Right behind us came Frank Soren, and he started collecting papers, etc., which was his job. I remember looking into the drawer and seeing a Sinn Féin tie there, and if I'm not mistaken, photographs of the 1916 leaders. I ordered the British officer to get out of bed. He asked me what was going on, and I replied, Ah, nothing. I then ordered him to march in front of me. As we were entering the back of the hall, I heard the hell of a row going on somewhere outside, a very heavy revolver fire. I marched my officer down to the back room where the other officer was. He was standing up in the bed, facing the wall. I ordered mine to do likewise. When the two of them were together, I said to myself, The Lord have mercy on their souls. I then opened fire with my Peter. They both fell dead. The words there of Vincent Byrne. The heavy revolver fire, he mentions, was coming from across the road. Frank Soren says in his statement that they learned afterwards, much to their disappointment, that a much-wanted intelligence officer, Major Carew, was living in the house opposite. Both Soren and Vinnie Byrne go on to describe how their party retreated to Sir John Rogerson's Quay to board a Liffey ferry which took them to the north side. I'm joined now by historian Liz Gillis. Liz, this was a coordinated, meticulously planned operation on the morning of Bloody Sunday. Was this operation inevitable? Was it always going to be something that had to happen? Yeah, pretty much, Miles. The question was, who was actually going to strike first? Um, now, if we go back to 1919, like Collins had pretty much disabled the British intelligence system with the assassinations of the G-men. But things began to change in May 1920 when the British appointed Brigadier General Sir Ormond Winter. And he was appointed as the uh, chief of British intelligence. Now, it had been really difficult to get fellas, you know, new recruits into intelligence. So he brought over his own guys. So you're talking about fellas who had served in Russia and in Egypt. But the difference with these new intelligence officers is that they weren't operating within the, the police stations. These men were here as civilians. They were to be completely invisible. So their cover was that they were businessmen living in and around Dublin Sea um, and then they would operate at night so go out after curfew and so on so they were meant to be invisible but between them and the military they began to have successes against the IRA because there was an increase in raids so the British were getting close and it was us or them and Collins decided someone's going to strike he decided it was going to be him 
Was he provoked by Lloyd George's famous speech at the Lord Mayor's Banquet in London on the 9th of November, where he talked about having murder by the throat? Yeah, that's one of the moments that sort of clarifies in, in Collins's head that something had to be done because that comes on, on the back of these successful raids and so on. And when you look at what happened in the month of October and early November with the death of Terence McSweeney, the um, shooting of Sean Tracy in Talbot Street, the execution of Kevin Barry, and Lloyd George famously makes that speech that, you know, by the, the actions that they're taking, they had murdered by the throat. And another thing that happened was, and this is a really close call for Collins, three of his key intelligence men had been picked up by the authorities and that was Liam Tobin, Frank Thornton and Tom Cullen. So like these were the next in line to Collins in terms of the intelligence unit and the British didn't realise who they had and they were released but it wouldn't be long before they realised they made a huge mistake. So getting so close to Collins, something had to be done. Now it wasn't that easy in 1920 for somebody with an English accent to hide in plain sight in Dublin even if they did bring their wives with them which some of these operatives did. So how did Callens go about identifying these men? Where did he get the information from in order to enable him to identify uh, these men as intelligence officers? Uh, it's amazing when you actually look at a network of spies that Collins had. The information was coming from everywhere. So one of the, the primary examples is Lily Mernon. So she was known as Lieutenant G and she was right in the heart of Dublin Castle. So she was working amongst these people. She, was, she identified auxiliaries. She identified the agents because she'd go to the whist drives and identify who was who and then go for lunch with one of Collins's agents and then go to the restaurants that these men went to and she'd picked them out but very importantly she gave the name of Lieutenant Anglis and he'd been involved in the shooting of uh, the Sinn Féin councillor John Lynch in the Exchange Hotel earlier in the year. Another example, Molly O'Reilly, member coming him on, um, she was a waitress in the Bon Bouche restaurant and that's where agents and British officers used to go and she'd listen in the conversations and she also got names and addresses. You have, of course, the, the G-men themselves, Broy and Dave Nelligan and so on, but there were also DMP men, there were at least 12 DMP men that were given Collins information and um, housemates that were working in the places that these men were living and even an auxiliary gave information uh, John Reynolds he passed on information about his own comrades he was a member of um, F Company Auxiliaries so he passed that information directly to Collins it was coming from everywhere Miles everywhere and Liz, you mentioned housemaids as being just one source of information. Let's hear now an extract from the witness statement of Charlie Dalton, an intelligence officer working in Dublin. He's describing how he gathered information on potential targets. I was instructed by the Deputy Director of Intelligence to contact a girl who had reported to a volunteer about some strange residents who were occupying the block of flats in which she was a maid. I questioned the girl, whose name was Maudie. She described the routine of the residents of the flats and it would seem from her account that they followed no regular occupation but did a lot of office work in their flats. I arranged with her to bring me the contents of the waste paper baskets. When these were examined, we found torn up documents which referred to the movements of wanted volunteers and also photographs of wanted men. Collins and GHQ staff then decided, in the light of intelligence reports supplied, that the only certain method of dealing with these enemy agents was by surprise and general attack, rather than by picking them off individually. 
the words there of Charlie Dalton from his witness statement to the Bureau of Military History. Liz, there were 35 targets in different locations across the city, mostly on the south side of the city. It was a huge operation. It was obviously too big for the squad alone to handle. There were only uh, a dozen members of the squad, so too big for them to handle, wasn't it? Uh, Miles, it's huge. I didn't realise the scale of this operation, but it was absolutely massive. Because when, as you rightly say, there's 12 members of the squad, the active service unit hadn't been set up yet. So they needed so many people to either take part, to be there, but then in the support. So you're talking... You're talking between 140, 140 people that took part in this. So you've got members of Coming Amon. They were on hand to take the guns away after the assassinations happened. Also, if there was anyone wounded, they were to get them away. You had other women that were waiting to take the information because you have the intelligence officers there as well. The intelligence officers were there to gather up the information, which was then passed on to women like uh, Catherine Rooney and they had to keep that information safe. Um, you have the getaway drivers, you have the people to get them then from one side of the city to the other away to safety. It was absolutely huge. So briefly talk us through what happened. I think um, the operation was timed for 9am so the various people involved must have been gathering well before that. Yeah, they had been told the night before. So once it was identified who was going to take part in it, um, the night before they were called together and told what they were going to do. So you're talking the next morning from about half eight, quarter to nine, they all start to descend. And you can just imagine this miles like Sunday morning, streets are deserted, but, you know, there's people congregating in small groups and nine o'clock, literally as the church bells were ringing, all hell broke loose. So the the knocks came to the doors. In some cases, they were let in because there were friendly people to the IRA, let them in. Um, in other cases, they, they forced their way in. Gunshots heard all over the place, screams heard all over the place. In some cases, the men were shot in their beds. In other cases, and the, isn't the example would be Pembroke Street, that um, they were gathered together uh, down on a landing and once Charlie Dalton had gathered up the information because he was an intelligence officer once he passed by the landing that was the signal that the men there were to be shot. Horrific scenes some were shot in front of their wives you've got the example of uh, Colonel Woodcock, uh, Captain Keenly side and Captain Newbury and it was over in minutes. Minutes that's all it took as quick as they were there they were gone. So 14 men dead, one fatally wounded. Uh, You mentioned Captain Newbury uh, being shot in front of his wife. Just uh, describe that incident because it's one of the most uh, graphic accounts, I think, of what actually happened and it culminated in two more tragedies. It's one of the most horrific scenes when you look at the descriptions and it's one of the most tragic events to happen in those few minutes. So Captain Newbury and his wife, they were living in 92 Lower Baggett Street. So when the volunteers came, they obviously tried to burst into the apartment, but um, they shot through the door and uh, Newbury was wounded. But both him and his wife tried to to stop them from getting in. Now, she was there to try and hold the door while new her husband tried to make his escape because they were on one of the lower floors. So he was going to try and make his escape out the front window. And 
she couldn't hold them back and the volunteers burst in she threw herself in in front of them to to try and protect her husband but again she couldn't stop them he was shot seven times but where he was shot he was actually trying to get out the window so he was left sort of lying half in and half out of the window and the the thing was that when the police then came and arrived at the scene what they saw it was it was so sort of it was so sad because she had covered him with a blanket left him there um she herself was traumatized but to add to this the police wouldn't go near his body because they feared that he was booby trapped now that's bad enough but she was quite brave because she was heavily pregnant at the time in the end you have a, a huge tragedy here because not only Captain Newbury, he died, but um, she gave birth a couple of weeks later and both she and her baby died. How did the authorities react to the shootings in the morning? Oh, it's, it's immediate panic and fear, Miles. There was a huge scramble. Everyone was called because there, there was a lot more agents that were living around the city um, and everyone was called in Dublin Castle just get in there for the safety get into the safety within the walls of Dublin Castle and you know there are main descriptions of just panic everyone just terrified and um, because no one knew who was next you know where they coming from them all so that immediate reaction get them in get them within the walls of Dublin Castle um, and, and you can only imagine what it was like and I think there was uh, there was talk of at least one suicide in in Dublin Castle um, later on later on that day. Now the operation was very bloody, obviously, but how successful was it in destroying the British intelligence network? Because not more than one prominent historian has suggested that many of the people killed were not intelligence officers at all. Well, the operation was was you know the reason for it was to destroy the British intelligence uh, system. It didn't destroy it, Miles, because you know. 35 names were on the list. There weren't 35 people killed. And as you've said, some weren't involved. There were court martial officers, there were intelligence officers, but there were also some civilians that were, were caught up. What it did, though, it shook them to the core. Because if you remember what Lloyd George had said very, very confidently, they had murder by the throat. They were closing the net. Everything was happening and it was in the favour of the British. This showed that they could be hit and they were hit big. Now, some of the names that were on the list and they were really one in particular was a target they wanted to get and that was uh, Hoppy Hardy who um, had a, a reputation beyond belief but he was in uh, Dublin Castle that night you had a, an intelligence officer Captain Juen um, and he was in Pembroke Street which was really the, the sort of the heart of the operation that's it's, it's one of the bloodiest scenes um, it had been identified as the possible headquarters of British intelligence um, but he was on duty in Inchcore the night before so he was on the list but wasn't there and that's what saved him so not dest- it didn't destroy it but my god it really shook them up Liz Gillis for now thank you for joining us to talk about that audacious series of assassinations on the morning of Bloody Sunday the 21st of November 1920 that day is perhaps best known for the Crown Forces reprisal in Croke Park, where members of the Royal Irish Constabulary and the Auxiliaries opened fire on a crowd attending a challenge football match between Dublin and Tipperary, killing 14 and wounding at least 60 others. We're going to hear now a perspective on that event through the stories of two men who were on the pitch that day. 
In this report, produced with the support of the County Kildare Decade of Commemorations Committee, Mark McMenamin presents the experiences of Frank Burke and Mick Salmon. Now, on his way to Croke Park that morning, my father had, was not aware of the assassinations which had been carried out by Collins' squad. When he arrived there, there were some discussions as to whether the game should be called off, but it was decided to go ahead. While Bloody Sunday is synonymous with the county's Dublin and Tipperary and the slain Tipperary footballer Michael Hogan, the events of that day left an indelible imprint on the lives of two young men from North Kildare, Frank Burke and Mick Salmon. My father was a sort of a regular on the Dublin football team since the start of 1918, playing usually at corner forward. Hogan was a relative newcomer on the tip team. He was young and had not much experience playing at that level. Aina de Burke is the son of the Dublin forward, Frank Burke, who marked Michael Hogan on that infamous day. He was playing on Bloody Sunday, that match and something on Bloody Sunday. He was left corner forward on the Dublin team. And his marker at right full back was Mick Hogan from Grange Mokler in, in, in Tipperary. According to Aina, the match began like any other with great excitement and the thoughts of violence were far from the minds of those involved. The match began with Dublin playing into a strong breeze blowing from the canal end of the pitch. Frank wasn't the only Kildare man on the pitch that day. The referee was Mick Salmon, who had won an All-Ireland medal with Kildare as a player the previous September. Mick Salmon is originally from Clane, County Kildare, and Mick not only was the referee on Bloody Sunday, he was also an All-Ireland winner with Kildare in 1919. Fergus Salmon is the great-nephew of Mick Salmon. He was born in Clane in 1893, and he went on to play not only with the Clane Club, but with also Kilcullen and Selbridge. And he went on to play with Kildare uh, from 1918 to 1921, winning that All-Ireland medal in 1919. So within a 12-month period, he found himself as the referee that day on Bloody Sunday. Mick Salmon was born in Mayhem in Clay in County Kildare and uh, went to work in Dublin after his mother had died and, and his father had died soon afterwards. That's Kildare historian James Durney. He told me about Mick Salmon's connections to the Republican movement. Mick had spent a short time in jail for publicly reading from a Sinn Féin election manifesto. He um, was arrested at his home in Kilcullen in August 1918 after reading the Sinn Féin manifesto to a crowd emerging from Sunday Mass at Kilcullen. And he was brought to Nace and then to Curra Camp and subsequently sentenced at Maryborough in County Leash to one year in prison, which was later commuted to one month. Frank Burke, the Dublin forward marking Michael Hogan on Bloody Sunday, also had a background in the Republican movement. Frank was born at Coona in Carberry and uh, he was a pupil and teacher in St Enda's or Skolena which was established by Podrick Pierce in 1908 and he joined the Irish Volunteers in 1913 he was there at the Rotunda in Dublin when the Volunteers were formed along with his brother and he became a member of Raffarnham Volunteers or the Kimmage Garrison as they were known he fought in the GPO 
at Easter week in 1916 and had got a, a tram over to the, the GPO in, in O'Connell Street. He was there for the week. At the end of the outbreak, he was man on one of the barricades. After Bloody Sunday, Frank Burke wrote a letter to his brother detailing the events that unfolded in Croke Park. An aeroplane passed over our heads, but we didn't take much notice. It turned round and flew off once it came. Here, Frank's son Aina is reading his father's account from that letter. About then, the play came over to my territory and Hogan and myself went for the ball. I can't remember who won possession because at that moment, the shooting started. As the players stood in disbelief, the RIC and auxiliaries turned their weapons on the crowd, firing indiscriminately. As the play was mostly near the now Hogan stand entrance, the majority of the players were over at that side and immediately made for the dressing rooms. There was nobody remaining on the pitch but myself, Mick Hogan and Stephen Sinnott. Uh, he was full forward of the Dublin team. We ran but didn't know where we were going. Confused and frightened, we ran to the centre of the field. We could see the bullets hitting the wall at the railway end. It was then we realised that they were shooting at the crowd. Mick Salmon, the referee, made his way to safety by crawling along the sideline. In the middle of the chaos, Frank, Michael Hogan and the Dublin full forward Stephen Sinnott tried to crawl to safety. The three of us threw ourselves on the ground. Hogan was on the right, I was in the centre and Stephen Sinnott on the left. And we started creeping from the centre of the field towards the goalposts. Then I turned sideways and started rolling, mentally making an act of contrition. I was wondering what was going to happen next. Eventually, through creeping and rolling, we got to the cycle track. Hogan said, be lying here close and might get some protection. We lay close to the edge of the field and all the time they were firing. They were only a few yards away. Then I heard Hogan cry out, Great God, I'm shot. One of those killed was Mick Hogan, who happened to be marking Frank Burke on the day, and another volunteer from Tipperary, who um, crawled over to say the act of contrition into his ear, Tom Ryan, was also shot dead by indiscriminate gunfire from the Crown Forces. As Frank crawled to safety, he was confronted by a member of the Black and Tans, as Aina recalls in his father's letters. Next thing I recall is that a Black and Tan came over and stuck his revolver into my chest. Who are you playing for, he said. I said, Dublin. Naturally, I had the Dublin colours on, but he wouldn't know that, I suppose. Another Black and Tan then came up to me and hit me a crack on the back of the head with his revolver. Where's your dressing room, he said. Over there on the far side, I said. Double up and start running. So I had to double up, running like that, along the railings to the dressing room. Frank Burke was picked up. He was arrested in the Crow Park and he was beaten around the head with a revolver by one of the policemen. Um, later on, they were brought into the, the changing rooms where their watches and cigarettes were stolen by the auxiliaries, many of them who seemed to be under the influence of drink. In the dressing room, the Tans searched the clothes of the players, taking whatever watches, cigarettes and money they found. They ordered us all 
to dress. Then, although random shots were still being fired, we were ordered to put up our hands and clear out. Frank Burke was arrested not long afterwards in the roundup of Republicans, in the general roundup after the Bloody Sunday killings, and the British opened a new internment camp in Ballykindler in County Down, and when that was full, opened another internment camp at the Curragh camp, known as the Rath Internment Camp, and Frank Burke was sent there after a time in Arbor Hill Prison. After his release, Frank Burke devoted the rest of his life to his career as headmaster Skolena in Rathfarnham, County Dublin. In later years, Frank Burke confided in his son Aina that Bloody Sunday was the most traumatic day of his life. In 1916, he had been in the GPO on, on the roof when all the buildings around him were in flames and they could feel the heat from Cleary's across the road. That was the Wednesday and Thursday before the evacuation on the Friday. Yet these few minutes in Croke Park were more terrifying for him than his experiences. Frank often talked about Michael Hogan, who had died beside him on that fateful day. He said, he, he did, he talked about Michael Hogan, he said, Bevran Bukele, he was a very nice person. Mick Salmon returned to Croke Park to referee future football matches and today the whistle he used on that infamous day resides in the GAA Museum in Croke Park. And they often say sometimes a referee not being remembered is, is, is a good thing because it will show that he or she had a very good game. But hopefully, please God, with, with the Bloody Sunday commemorations and, and the events that surround it, uh, his memory could be brought to the fore as been a part of that, that fateful day in Croke Park. Frank Burke died in Rathfarnham on the 28th of December 1987, aged 92. For the rest of his life, he rarely spoke of the events of Bloody Sunday. Mick Salmon passed away much earlier in 1947 and is buried in Clane, County Kildare. In recent months, Kildare County Council has put in place plans to commemorate both men, including a unique idea to remember Mick Salmon, as committee member Lorcan O'Rourke explains. One definite thing that the Commemoration Committee is doing is presenting a plaque for a presentation to a referee of the year choice of the Kildare County Board at their annual awards in memory of Mick and it will be in the shape of a Celtic cross with an inscription on it commemorating Mick. Here in Kildare we've been trying to and we have been successfully commemorating every event from this whole decade of centenaries and this is just one more event that we are commemorating because we have a clear connection to the Bloody Sunday events. You know, it's not just a Dublin Tipperary thing, it's not just a Dublin thing a lot of people from the country were working in Dublin and functioning in Dublin then as Republican activists. So it's kind of an all-national event when we, when we were commemorating Bloody Sunday Mark McMenamin was reporting there and that piece was produced with the support of the County Kildare Decade of Commemorations Committee. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after these with more on the events of Bloody Sunday.
Welcome back. In the aftermath of the Bloody Sunday assassinations and the retaliation at Croke Park, Michael Collins's agent, David Nelligan, was pressed into service to see if he could locate the two leading IRA Dublin commanders, Dick McKee and Pather Clancy, who had been captured, along with Conor Clune, a Gaelic League member, the night before. I did not know them personally, but when I went to the Bridewell, I saw no one answering to the description given to me. I called by appointment to St. Michael's and John's Church in Exchange Street, where Frank Thornton had 12 men waiting to rescue them, and I told them they were not in the Bridewell. That meant that the prisoners were in the castle, in the custody of the auxiliaries, and as good as dead. A fantastic story of an escape by these two men was put out later by the castle authorities as an excuse for murdering them. Actually, McKee, Clancy and Clune had been murdered by the auxiliaries as a reprisal in a guardroom in Exchange Court, next door to and inside the castle gate. Collins was extremely upset over the disappearance of McKee and Clancy and wanted them rescued at all costs. The words there of David Nelligan describing the fate of McKee, Clancy and Clune. I'm joined once again by historian Liz Gillis to talk about the bloody climax of this day of horror in Dublin. Liz, tell us how those three men had the misfortune to end up in Dublin Castle. So the night before, there was a meeting in Vaughan's Hotel with Collins and McKee and Clancy and others. Conor Clown was up in Dublin visiting on Gaelic League business, but then they got word that a raid was coming. So Collins and McKean Clancy they quickly got out and went elsewhere. But uh, unfortunately for Conor Clown, he remained in the hotel and then the raiding party came and he was picked up. McKee and Clancy, they made their way to Sean Fitzpatrick's house, which was on Gloucester Street. But what they didn't know was that they were being followed by an informer and he got word to Dublin Castle and the military quickly made their way to, uh, the, to Fitzpatrick's house. They were taken to Dublin Castle. That was where F Company auxiliaries are based. And they were held in the guard room. And that was the last place they were. What happened in the guard room? What do we know about what happened? Uh, the three men were murdered. It's just the simplest way to put it, Miles. They were shot. They were beaten. Dick McKee, it has been reported, was bayoneted. The British were quick to, to put out their version of events and they even supplied photographs. Many people have probably seen them where they said that the men were shot trying to escape. Now, there's no such thing. Um, if you even see the photographs, anyone you know, go, how the hell would these three men, guarded by eight men, try and get out a little window? No way. This is a response from the British for a lot of uh, volunteers who died in custody. It was one that was rolled out time and time again, both before Bloody Sunday and after. It was just vengeance. It was a reprisal for what had happened that morning. And those three men paid the ultimate price for it. In terms of Collins and once he heard about the loss of McKay and Clancy, he put himself at risk. These were men who were not just close friends. They were fantastic soldiers. He had held them in such high regard. But he went, he came out of hiding and he went to the funeral. He was identified by a woman at the funeral. So, you know, anything could have happened to Collins, one of the most wanted men in Ireland at the time. But he paid for the funeral and he paid for private autopsies to be done. And the thing about 
the loss of McKean Clancy is it wasn't just felt by Collins and, you know, the members of the Dunn Brigade. This was felt nationwide because Pat Clancy was in Clare. Dick McKay had travelled around the country. He had served time in prison with volunteers from around the country. So it was a major, major loss um, and a personal loss felt by the Republican movement. Liz Gillis, thanks for joining us once again to talk about the fate of McKee, Clancy and Clune. I'm joined now by Cathy Scuffle, Dublin City Council historian in residence and a contributor to the new History on Your Doorstep volume from Dublin City Libraries, which focuses on the events of Bloody Sunday. Cathy, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thank you. Now, Bloody Sunday was, in a sense, the culmination of the tensions building in Ireland all through 1920. Prior to Bloody Sunday, the Crown forces had been carrying out a large number of raids across the city of Dublin. On one day alone, for example, the 6th of November, I think 50 houses were raided by the Crown forces. And you have a personal connection to that event, haven't you? I certainly do, Miles. And this came as a surprise to me when I discovered this story when checking back the records. The quiet cul-de-sac of St. Michael's Terrace Black Pits in the Belleville estate in the city's Liberties area was actually raided on this occasion. Um, So at 6.30 on the morning of the 6th of November 1920, the quietness of this little estate was disturbed by the arrival from Wellington Barracks on the nearby South Circular Road of two large military lorries containing one officer and about 16 other ranks from the 8th Lincolnshire Regiment. They forced entry into the house and found um, the father, Albert Sr., in bed and arrested him. And they also arrested his son, Albert Jr., who was 21 years of age. Now, Albert Sr. and Albert Jr. were my great-grandfather and my grandfather. And both of them were taken uh, to the barracks. Uh, They were arrested and taken away to the barracks. But they weren't the only ones to be taken into custody from that household on that day. And this is where it got very interesting, Miles. No, they weren't. Um, In in addition to taking away the two men, uh, the military also took um, a certain amount of documentation. They they took some photographs and 50 pigeons, (laughs) 50 pigeons were arrested on the day. What possessed them to take away 50 pigeons? Well, well, the two Halberts shared an interest in breeding homing pigeons and It's presumed that there was information or intelligence that these homing pigeons were being used for other than racing. And it actually made the papers, which is all the funnier. So, yes, they they took them away. They took 12 away initially and indicated they'd come back for the remainder. Uh, But it transpired that either your great-grandfather or your grandfather had a licence for said pigeons. So I think they had to return them, didn't they? They had to return the pigeons and, and, and the permit, which had been granted by the Crown. So uh, everything was quite legal and above board. But it, it just shows the type of tension, the type of raid, and even the most unsuspecting households could have been raided at this time. As you say, it led to a great headline in the Irish Examiner, Pigeons That's Arrested. Right. Pigeons arrested, exactly. Now, if the authorities had been carrying out large-scale raids before Bloody Sunday, there's no doubt that those efforts increased after Bloody Sunday. Was anybody safe from arrest at that stage? Uh, Nobody. 
nobody was safe. Anybody who had any connection with the Republican movement, from volunteers to city councillors, uh, they were looking for them all. And where were they sent? What happened to them? This is it. Uh, Ballykindler in County Down was the first internment camp set up at this time. Now, it was closely followed by others in Bear Island and Spike Island in Cork and, of course, the Curra camp in County Kildare. But a lot of the Dublin arrests seem to have been brought to Ballykindler. Those who were going to be held for any length of time were sent up to County Down. And I think certain Republican families or well-known Republican families were targeted. The Ring family, for example. The, the Ring family from Sackville Gardens. In fact, on Monday, as it was the 22nd of November, so that's exactly 100 years from this programme, 100 years back from this programme, uh, three brothers from the Ring family, Liam, Patrick and Christopher Ring, were arrested at their home in Sackville Gardens as part of this uh, roundup. Now, they were given... 12-month sentences of detention and they were among uh, the first of the internees at Ballykindler. Now I suppose if, if we look back the reprisal for the Ring family wasn't unexpected. All five sons in that family had been fought in the 1916 Rising so they would have been very much on the radar of the authorities at the time. Some of the raids were very, very heavy-handed and there were fatalities in, in certain cases, weren't there? They were miles there. There's one particular case which I found quite shocking. And this is the story of a gentleman called Thomas Doyle. Now, I'll give you a little bit of a background about Thomas Doyle. His family lived in the Dolphins Barn area of Dublin. They were a very, very well regarded family. They had a premises at 3 Dolphins Barn Street. Now, that would be where the Coombe Hospital is today, directly opposite Emerald Square in Dolphins Barn. And Thomas, one of two sons in that family, he worked in the nearby city Woolen Mills in Cork Street. Now, on this particular evening, Thomas came home from work and was washing himself by the tap in the yard of his home having returned from his work in the city woolen mills. When the house was raided by auxiliaries and they barged through the home, made their way to the backyard area where Thomas was and shot him dead in front of his mother and his sisters. He was removed to the Meath Hospital where he was pronounced dead um, later that day. But it just shows you, he, he, he was a gentleman at work that day, had returned, was in the backyard of his home and all this took place. And then about a week later, uh, somebody called Isaac Kelly was arrested. Who was Isaac Kelly? Now, Isaac Kelly was arrested from his home in Longwood Avenue on the South Circular Road. The uh, auxiliaries indicated they were looking for a Michael Kelly, but there was no Michael Kelly in the house, so they arrested Isaac. Now, Kelly... Isaac Kelly was the son of a well-known alderman and city councillor, Councillor Tom Kelly, who was responsible for a lot of the house building in the Dublin area at this time. But Isaac was arrested and he was brought to Ballykindler and he was held in Ballykindler into the new year. His time in Ballykindler, though, wasn't as bad as you might expect. Tell me what happened to him while he was interned in Ballykindler. This is another one of these wonderful stories that you unearth when you go through the record smiles. Yes, his time in Ballykindler was quite romantic and it even made the, Rom the Roscommon Herald and it was picked up by the New Ross Standard at the time under the headline Romantic Marriage. And the romantic marriage took place in the Ballykindler camp. The censor was the witness 
Yes, and the bride was a lady called Kathleen King and she was from Carrick near Mullingar. Now, to, to add to the romance of the moment, the wedding ring was hammered out of a coin in the camp and fashioned into a wedding ring for her. Now, we've heard tonight some of the tragic stories of the victims of the killings in Croke Park. One of the lesser known victims is Joe Trainer. Tell us a little bit about Joe. Uh, Joe is quite an interesting character and I was particularly interested in him because I'm looking at cases in South Dublin. So Joe Trainer was from Ballymount. Now, the Ballymount area at the time would have been very, very rural, small farm holding, small market garden area. He was about 21. He was nearly 21 years of age. He had been born uh, in Drimna Castle, of all things, and that's a school today, but he was born in the castle and his family lived in various locations in and around Inchicore, Drimna, the general area of Fox and Geese. It would have been quite rural County Dublin. He was a a very, very keen sportsman. And for example, he was captain of the Young Emmets GAA Club on the Nace Road. But like many from this area, he was also a member of the Irish Volunteers serving in the F Company 4th Battalion of the Dublin Brigade. Now, Joe attended the match in Croke Park that afternoon, obviously with his interest in sport more to the the fore than anything else. And he was there with some friends at the canal end and he was tragically shot twice in the back as he tried to escape over the wall as the whole events of the afternoon played out. Now, despite his injuries, he managed to make his way along a trackway by the railway and was found there by members of the Ring family, believe it or not, who who were from Sackville Gardens nearby. And they brought him into their home and gave him first aid. But realising the extent of his injuries, they brought him out the back of their home to a small laneway where he was collected by ambulance and brought to Jervis Street Hospital. He later died there. Now, in a time before we have mobiles and telephone or even any type of news, we didn't have radio at this time, it fell to a friend of Joe's, a man called PJ Ryan, who had been at the match with him uh, to bring the sad news back to the cottage in Ballymount to Joe's parents uh, later that day. Indeed. Um, Despite the pandemic, there's been, uh, I think there've been a number of events to commemorate the centenary of Bloody Sunday. I'm sure there will be many more. And that includes the renaming of a street. Tell us more about that. This is quite a nice tribute and it just shows we can commemorate things in a number of ways. So I mentioned the little laneway at the back of the home in Sackville Gardens, at the back of the ring home in Sackville Gardens where Joe Trainer was found. Well, there are plans to rename that laneway Joe Trainer Way as a tribute to him and to the ring family for, for their attendance to him on that day. I think that's quite a nice thing to do, quite poignant. It's just a small laneway, but it's part of our history and it's part of the story of the day. Now, granted, some events have been adapted in light of our current situation, but they're no less important. One initiative undertaken by Dublin City Libraries and the Historians in Residence is the publication of, I mentioned in the introduction, of a special edition of History on Your Doorstep. Tell us more about that. 
Well, History on on Your Doorstep has been a hugely successful initiative by Dublin City Libraries uh, under the care of Dublin City Council. And this will be our third edition, free publication, available to everybody, whoever, anybody who wishes it. And on this occasion, we are dedicating the entire publication to the events of the day of Bloody Sunday. So the events of the morning are covered by your own Liz Gillis. And then we look at Croke Park. That section has been written by Cormac Moore, my colleague, who also edits the publication with Tara Doyle from Dublin City Council. The newspapers, looking at the newspapers, which is a great way of assessing how the day was interpreted and perhaps used in propaganda. That chapter has been covered by Mary Muldowney. And James Curry then looks at the story of Dick McKee. Now, I think this is an excellent idea of Dublin City Council to make this publication free to everybody. And they will be available when the libraries reopen. But in the meantime, it will be available to download online also to give people a a simple summary of the events of the day told through the different essays as written from different perspectives. Absolutely. Another great initiative by our libraries and we'll be able to direct listeners on our website to how they can actually download this uh, publication. But as you say, when um, everything becomes actual again, physical copies (laughs) will be uh, available. Uh, If anything, if if things do become actual again, I'm sure they will at some point. And it's called History on Your Doorstep. Doorstep. That's it. History on Your Doorstep.